Hello and welcome back to Design Pod with me, Hamish Kilburn, the editor of Hotel Designs. In this episode, we're looking at stimulating wellness with the aim to understand how designers can use sensory design to create a deeper sense of meaning and place and purpose when creating or transforming spaces. Now, this episode was largely inspired by our series sponsor, Geberit. The bathroom manufacturer has just launched its latest hotel guest experience report for 2023, working in collaboration with some of the UK's leading architects and design pioneers. The publication, now in its third year, explores the challenges and opportunities facing hotels today. And it's a must read for anyone who is designing hotels for the future. We've left a link to the report in the description below. Our special guest for this episode is Ren Lokes, the founder of Beekin, who was a key collaborator in this year's report for Geberit, looking at, like this episode is exploring, stimulating wellness. The ethos for her studio, which launched just two years ago in the height of the pandemic, is pretty simple. It's basically to create spaces that stimulate wellness and purpose. I kicked off our conversation by going back a few years to where it all started for Ren, to understand how design became not just a way of making sense of the world around her, but to use creativity as a way to make spaces more meaningful, to work for everyone. I warn you now, Ren is pretty honest about her experiences in this episode, and it does include references to mental health. I was really humbled, in fact, that Ren felt comfortable and put trust in me when she opened up and shared her experiences about her past, which ultimately made her into the thoughtful and talented designer that she undoubtedly is today. So Ren, thank you so much for joining us here on Design Pod for Series 4. We're very excited. This episode is obviously all around stimulating wellness and it's been a real topic for you that's like, you know, led your studio from, from its conception. Talk to us more about where that all started, perhaps taking us right back to your childhood as to when design became your narrative. Yeah, the concept of wellness um, and creating spaces that feel safe and healing has been something that I've been curious about since I was a kid. You know, I think if we go right back to where it really started, when I was quite young, you know, sort of 12 and 13, I had quite strong depression and anxiety, um, and you could view that as not feeling safe um, in the world. And basically, you know, it was a difficult experience, but I got very involved as I started to heal um, in mental health advocacy. I sat on boards of directors and I was involved in policy and, you know, listening to people who had lived experience of anxiety and depression um, and, you know, interviewing them and learning from them about what would help them feel better or what would help them to heal and then integrating that wisdom into sort of you know policy and programs and activism work so um, so really from a very early age you were you understood designing around behaviors and, and actually your behavior and your experience I guess yes yeah and using my body as a compass to think you know how am I feeling and, and what is causing these feelings and and I remember really strongly speaking to quite a few people and hearing that actually one of the biggest barriers to healing uh, was the, the design of hospitals, that this clinical cold look stopped people from wanting to get help. And I just thought, wow, that is really powerful. You know, this, the design of a building is stopping people from healing. And, you know, I was sort of in my teenage years during this time, I always loved art uh, as well. So I decided to go to art school 
and did a four-year undergrad in oil painting. And I decided to focus my final painting thesis on, it was very much like phenomenology or, you know, spaces um, and these patinas of memories that we create around them and the sort of interaction between spaces and our emotional and physical well-being and you know I think I was thinking about that in sort of philosophical ways I was also working part-time as a caregiver uh, for a man with cerebral palsy you know who had he wasn't able to use his arms very much and he was in a wheelchair full-time so I was also sort of noticing you know how spaces um, stopped him from accessing them you know he couldn't get in because of his wheelchair or the architraves were not wide enough and and just thinking I guess you could say or this sort of continued curiosity of you know this relationship between how we feel you know our opportunities in life and, and the design of physical environments yeah that's, yeah, that's so, an incredibly powerful realization of what you want to do with your life to to move into design before those experiences what did you want to be I mean I wanted to be a cabin crew when I was growing up yeah. <laughs> just I wanted to travel but yeah. I think what we what we want then is so unedited and so raw and then we find a way to take what it is about that occupation that we can do in, in other ways in order to really kind of like you know merge into to our passions for design yeah. for example I mean I I guess you know when I was sort of 13 until 19 I did so much work in mental health advocacy I traveled all across Canada um, I worked on a national framework for children and youth mental health. You know, I ended up being awarded a medal, medal from the government of Canada, did lots of public speaking. Um, and I thought I wanted to become a lawyer doing, you know, advocacy work, really continuing that sort of really strong um, mental health work through law. But, you know, there's a real part of me that is an artist and is really creative. And I thought actually the structure of law would it allow that sort of color and creativity to come through? And yeah, so I mean, I that's, that's such a young, that's such a young <laughs> age to to find your identity. Thirteen to nineteen, you were doing yeah. all of these amazing things. How did that change your your childhood? I mean, they're really important things you're doing, whereas many thirteen to nineteen year olds are just focusing on on the weekend. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think it was quite serious. You know, I think I was definitely a very serious child, and. Uh, you know, now I play a lot more and I think I play through Beacon and sort of my art uh, and the creativity of design. And I think I found a bit more balance. You know, I was quite yeah. serious and I was doing quite serious things. And, and I think the decision, you know, I wrote the LSATs. I started law school applications. You know, the decision to actually move into design and, and stay in the sort of more creative world professionally. I think was a really good thing for me <laughs> because yeah. it, I think play is really important for me and my creativity. Um, but, you know, those those years of really hard, serious work have deeply um, inspired me, especially yeah. around you know, the, the real importance of listening to people and co-creation and stakeholder engagement. Yeah, I completely agree. And and I feel like one, one of my questions was, you know, how did you find design or how did design find you? And it feels to me, I mean, it speaks volumes that your unique selling point and the, the point of difference in your studio has been born from your experiences. And I think that that's mm -hmm. quite common with designers. And that's kind mm -hmm. of why we don't see our profession as not necessarily work. It's a lifestyle and everything. I, I know you, Ren, and everything around you inspires your work. And that's that's yeah. a really beautiful, a beautiful way of working. Mm -hmm. Do you find it difficult therefore to, to shut off or do you not really want to shut off? Do you want to just keep being inspired by 
my life? I mean, yeah, I think the thing about me is I'm constantly learning and I'm super curious. So I, you know, go on tangents and I will deep dive into topics and I'll totally absorb myself into them and then I'll integrate them into my work. So it is difficult for me to cut off. I guess I I do it, I sort of have tricked myself into doing it because I need to sort of stop thinking sometimes to allow more creativity to come in <laughs> and yeah. more ideas to come in. So uh, to be sustainable as someone who runs a company and is a creative, I do need to, you know, create boundaries for myself to say, actually, I'm going to go for a really long walk in the forest. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to do something very different to allow my mind just to quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's it's a balance, isn't it, between yeah. um, research and reflection. You know, yes. you have to you have to reflect and soak it all in and yeah. understand how much is is gonna you know merge into to something you know different and new. Mm. Let's talk about Beacon. When did you launch Beacon? It was only it's only a few years old, isn't it? Yeah, so it's just two years really. Um, so it's two years ago. Um, so I launched it during the pandemic and. Yeah, I mean, it's been an incredible journey. I, um, I've i always wanted to have my own studio. Um, so, you know, to really have that creative freedom to sort of move in the directions that I'd like to and sort of and be quite unrestricted in my approach because in some ways it's a little bit unconventional in the way that I like to work with clients. Mm. Um, and I love, I love having that creative freedom. But, you know, I think anyone who's an entrepreneur starts a business, you know, it's a real journey and, I think for me, it's been a lot about, you know, having a North Star, having a plan, having a direction, you know, aligning to that, but also letting go because yeah. things get thrown your way and, and being able to adapt uh, is really important. And, and I think totally. also, you know, reflect and take feedback from clients and think about, you know, how you can iterate things. You know, having a company in itself is quite a creative thing. We'll definitely talk about your approach, which is actually just so inspiring, but I kind of want to talk about the nature and nurture side of this because you launched in the pandemic. Without the pandemic, would things have been different in terms of how much people would listen more now that they're aware of, you know, because we, we were forced into this hibernation and we were forced yeah. to really confront wellness, which is yeah. such a driving force of your studio. So I just kind of wonder where Beacon or whether it would have had as much amplification as it has had if the yeah. pandemic wasn't there as a catalyst for you to sort of take take it as an opportunity as opposed to yeah. a weakness. Yeah, I mean, I think there's this like great trust and timing. Um, and, you know, when an idea is sort of conceived, they're sort of, you know, they come at the right time. And a couple of things, you know, being in lockdown meant that, you know, I am a bit of a workaholic, you know, as in I enjoy it a lot. I love working and researching and, you know, not being able to leave my home meant I had so many extra hours, <laughs> you know, to sort of <laughs> pour into research, which is like a very happy space for me of being a bit introverted and sort of just allowing me that space to sort of really drop into something. So, you know, in, I was very lucky in that sense that there were aspects of lockdown that were quite allowed sort of creativity to come through me and to work with that and sort of research. And then the other thing, of course, is this wellness agenda. You know, people are became really strongly aware of how they were affected by their home environments, by their workplace environments. And 
you know, there was a huge behavioral change. All of a sudden people were living and working at home and there was an opportunity for them to reflect on, <clears throat> you know, how do I feel now? How do I feel working at home versus the office? You know, it, it was sort of like a big experiment in some ways. So I think, you know, people started to develop a language about how they were feeling in spaces because they became more aware of it. So I feel in that sense, it's given me a way for people to sort of relate to design and wellness and think that, you know, interior design is not just a, a nice to have, it's actually a really powerful thing that can really truly affect how you feel, you know, your productivity um, with work and your opportunities. So, uh, you know, in that sense, I think that Beacon sort of came to life at, at a really good time. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as you and I have both experienced, research doesn't have to be boring. I'm obviously yeah. referencing that trip that we took down to Folkestone in Kent. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> How much fun was that? I mean, was what was lovely. just amazing was that we were in nature. We were experienced. So for those listeners who, who don't know, M Collective took 80 designers and myself <laughs> down to Folkestone in Kent for this festival that they created out of nothing. There was music. There was everything, wasn't there? There was sound yeah. baths, yoga, coffee in the morning, like everything you could even think of. It was it was there. And it was such a moment for creatives to come together and to share ideas, but in a really authentic way, like we would go on beach walks or just sit by the beach or, you know, just lie there and hear a sound bath and be all inspired. And you and I came out of it a little bit crazy, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> Our creativity came through. <laughs> but we really, brilliant. it was really yeah. interesting because we really found it sounds like a love story but we really found each other in that moment yeah. like we we knew each other we were only, only really the people who who knew each other um yeah. you, you and I had that had that bond and I feel like we kind of experienced that together and what I find really inspiring is since that trip things have just been deeper between our yeah. working relationship like you've written some articles for us you you've written some columns and it's just been such a nice relationship to work with whereas before obviously it was it was great to work with you and, and to know you and to you know we were really inspired by you but it's so nice when you break beyond that barrier of somebody yeah. and I feel as if our industry does that really well yeah no I mean it was amazing and to have that time to sort of you know to get to know you and and to be in that setting and and you know the other thing that's just come to mind is um you know with COVID and with that trip and also with you know my own design philosophy is you know this it connects to the sort of concept of biophilic hypothesis or biophilic design is connection to nature. And, you know, in COVID, I think we realized how important nature is and how sacred walks in the forest and, you know, being in the pulse and the calmness of nature is, you know, our trip, you know, able to have deep um, and meaningful and very real conversations held within this backdrop of nature. I think you know, nature really facilitates, you know, healing and fun and, and connection in a really deep way. Um, and, you know, I think for me as well, you know, when I think about design and what sorts of environments I want to create and where I look for inspiration, more and more it is in nature. Um, and, you know, yeah. taking inspiration or patterns or color palettes or you know circadian lighting the rhythm of nature and stitching that into our interior spaces because you know it, it really is powerful 
Yeah. And I think for the brand as well, it was really nice to see a manufacturer and a supplier really getting on board with understanding the narrative. So so it was called Camp Collective and it was set up by the founders who were all there. It was great to meet them as well. The collective agency is just such a great family. And uh, it was just it was just nice just to not really know what was going to happen next as well. We were kind of outside of our comfort zones, but we felt very comforted. When do you think nature played such a, an important role in design in modern design I guess when when do clients really understand actually it's it's so much more beyond having some plants in a room yeah I mean I think people have been thinking about it for a long time but it just you know there's been different researchers like 1900s and then you know Edward Wilson around the biophilic hypothesis I think he coined that term in 1984 or he at least sort of helped push it forward Um, But I do think there was something about the pandemic and, you know, this nature as being a space where people felt safe um, Mm. that sort of helped propel it forward. But, you know, we are of nature. We are animals. You know, we are nature. And so staying connected to nature, you know, our body seems to seek that out or, you know, from a mental health perspective, you know, back when I was a kid, you know, people would go on walks or have counseling sessions, you know, in the forest. And there is something so peaceful and so calming about being close to nature. Um, Yeah, totally. But I think we can get lost in it though, can't we? Especially mm -hmm. there there are so many words and terminologies used, biophilic design, sustainability, sensory design. And it's really hard to, to actually narrow it down to its simplest form to really understand the definition of them in order to use those tools in designers toolboxes correctly I guess and not just to put something up meaninglessly yeah I guess there's a term like well washing or you know green washing and (laughs) and and actually just thinking about you know our time with camp collective like this you know the the group that hosted that you know their product you know it was so nice to meet them and see how because they work with a lot of um, recycled materials and, you know, things that are environmentally sustainable, but also to sort of see them as a group and learn more about their company and to sort of really witness how that sustainability radiates through everything that they do. You know, they are really nice people. They really care about their team. You know, they create these beautiful events, you know, where their ethos just radiates through everything, like working with local suppliers. You know, I think for me, like that is really beautiful because then if I purchase and I have, you know, some of their products for interior spaces, it's like not only is this physical product, you know, recite from recycled materials, sustainable, you know, made from products from nature, but actually I'm buying it from a company who's whole way of working totally aligns with me you know they're really trying to do really good work I I think it absolutely sends a message to other manufacturers out there when you're having to package so many you actually uh, have to tick so many boxes especially in commercial design in order to be you know conscious um to for the materials to to work to be fire retardant but also to be sustainable and there are so many different you know things that we that products and materials have to be these days you can't really understand as a designer or take it all in without having a face-to-face conversation and actually a relationship with the supplier to understand what that actually means. And I feel as if the collective agency, but also Geberit, obviously, which is another brand that you've worked with recently, um, is really getting on board with. I mean, the report that you've done 
2023, the, the wellness report. I've read through snippets of it because we're only allowed to see so much before it's unveiled. By the time this podcast is released, it will be up and out and we'll share the link in the description. But what's that been like working with a supplier and manufacturer in this way? I mean, I think developing relationships with people that you feel aligned with and working together is it's just so meaningful. So, mm. you know, Gebert are really on board with um, ideas around social sustainability and environmental sustainability. But social sustainability is, you know, really thinking about how do we create products? How do we create spaces that are suitable for all sorts of people? So thinking about, you know, wheelchair accessibility, visual impairments, you know, being really, really inclusive. And also, you know, I appreciate them reaching out to me and Beacon and sort of, you know, how can we work with people who are thinking a little bit differently and sort of being a bit open-minded around that. So, you know, for me, as someone who has a company, it's, it's really amazing to develop deeper, meaningful relationships with suppliers um, and, yeah. and work together on things. It's, it's just much more rewarding because there's thousands of suppliers but actually being really discerning about who you work with and then deepening those relationships it's just fun because then you can co-create yeah. things together I think also it's really important for suppliers and everyone to, to sort of seek inspiration from outside the comfort zone of your arena so yes. to, to look at things from a wellness perspective from sensory angle as opposed to just looking I mean Geberit you know they they manufacture toilets and bathroom products and yeah. to go beyond that to really understand the sensory flow of of where these ideas are coming from um is amazing and, and every year we we publish their reports and they're designed for designers and architects there it's interesting because they managed to balance enough research and development to to get something from the report but also in a way that's really easy to consume and I think there's a real skill there obviously reading through the report what's the ritual of bathing got to do with designing bathrooms uh, because that's obviously one of the chapters in in your report so how did that inspire new thinking for Geberit do you think well you know I was thinking about the bathroom space and you know hotels and you know these sorts of you know if you go to a hotel often you know, we're moved out of our comfort zone or we get to experience something slightly new. And there can be a bit of a new ritual established around it. And I guess what I mean by ritual is turning the everyday into something a little bit more sacred um, and sort of slowing down and connecting with it. So, you know, I was thinking when I go into a hotel, I love, you know, if it has a beautiful bathroom space, you might sort of drop into that and you might light a candle or enjoy the sort of dimmable lighting and the beautiful bathtub and, you know, often those beautiful product and, you know, just allow yourself to really relax into that moment and, and really connect with your body and your breath and the sort of slow pace of um, being held in a beautiful sort of bathing environment or the, you know, the spa. A lot of people now, you know, they really love going to hotels for the whole spa experience. So, and, and there is a ritual that can be formed around that. Um, it's sort of a ritualistic experience. I think especially around, you know, leaving your phone out of the bathroom and really just dropping into the, the pulse of nature or, you know, real lifetime rather than the speed of the digital world and you know I think people take those experiences home with them you know they want to often recreate that feeling within their own home and sometimes you know a lots of clients will say to me private residential clients like I've been to this great hotel I want that toilet or I want the tap <laughs> or basically they really want to tangibly recreate that experience which is yeah. recreating a ritual you know and I think 
I think, you know, design can help people, you know, one way to sort of connect with the world through a series of rituals. Like imagine, you know, every morning starting your day with this beautiful sort of, you know, bathing ceremony just to get connected to your body or you end the day in that way. Uh, and I, I and think just, a lot of interior designers need to practice what they preach with this because yeah. it's a difficult arena where, you know, there's so many deadlines now. And I think just with modern life, it's, it's yeah. you know, outside of work, it's hard to find that time. But what you're saying and what I see in your work is that, you know, you can value so much more in your work from spending this time to really understand the the essence of design, the feeling, as well as the look, I guess. Yeah. And I guess what I think, you know, is when I'm working with people and companies is being really mindful about things, you know, like working with suppliers whose ethos you really align with, and then you're bringing the energy of their product into the space, you know, just being really conscientious, uh, at least at the start of what you're bringing into your space, you know, what it's prompting, because anytime you design something, you are prompting some sort of routine or ritual, you know, if you place a beautiful armchair in the sunlight, the book nearby, or you're prompting people to sit there and to sort of build a habit or build a ritual around it. So the more we sort of become conscious of this, of how design creates behavioral changes or can stimulate different ways of moving through the space, the better. And the other thing I would say is, you know, around ritual or having time, you know, having time to drop into a bath or just connecting with yourself. You know, I think the world is so fast and especially when we're online, you know, the speed moves really quickly. There's a lot going on. And often I think we can get disconnected by how our body feels. So I think even just having a moment, five minutes where, you know, I think especially bathrooms, you know, there are these sort of spaces that you go to on mm -hmm. your own, you know, and often, you know, people say, you know, if they're a bit introverted in a sort of public setting, they might just go to the bathroom just to have a moment. But, you know, even if you just have a few minutes to drop into your body and sort of disconnect from the digital world, disconnect from the speed, time does slow down, <laughs> you know, so you yeah. don't need, you don't need like an hour long, you know, sort of ceremony of bathing in the morning. Amazing if you can, but it could just be, <laughs> <laughs> you know, a short period of time. But as long as you're present, it's about becoming very present uh, and connected. And, you know, that is definitely very good for your mental health. When did you start living that way? I'm not yeah. suggesting for one moment that you have a ritual every day or you take three hours to get ready. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I, I do know that you're someone who is really in touch with your feelings and, you know, self-aware, I think. And that, that shows in your work, I believe. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I was hospitalized for very severe anxiety when I was 12, 13. Mm. You know, so I had to develop techniques to um, look after my mental health from a very, very young age. And for me, it was about getting into the body you know anxiety can be stuck in the mind and you know you can have recurring thoughts so you can you can get into these sort of mental rabbit holes <laughs> that can go really you know can be scary when you're young and so for me you know slowing down connecting with breath noticing how my body feels being in the body has been an ongoing practice that I've had for most of my life it's um, hard though it's, it's hard to do that if you're not used to it like that's the hardest yes. thing to do to shut off if your brain is wired to always be on well, so what, what advice would you give to designers who really want to you know 
design deeper to to understand the feelings and be aware of themselves as well what advice would you give to them to start this journey of discovery yeah i mean i think you know creating environments that are sensory rich you know so if if we think back to earlier on i was saying you know people said they were scared to go into hospitals because they were so clinical Mm. you know creating spaces that have you know, beautiful textures under your feet, you know, maybe cork or, you know, having plants that sort of tickle you when you walk by so Mm -hmm. that you sort of notice your body or, you know, beautiful soft lighting, you know, just creating these really sensory rich environments that is going to help people stay connected to their body because they will feel their body. And I think, especially when there's variation, that is something I would definitely recommend that people look into and and I also just think you know the body is so wise so I often encourage my clients or we talk about sensory intelligence and it's just noticing things like you know if you're out for dinner just notice how you feel do you feel a bit anxious um do you feel relaxed you know just just begin to to notice how you're feeling and I think just you know slowly developing that intelligence on your own is really important because especially when you look at neurodiversity um, and sort of sensory overload, um, which is, you know, some individuals find spaces with lots of sensory information, like tons of patterns or bright lights, they can create a feeling of anxiety. And I think some people think, oh, I must be socially anxious, you know, because I'm feeling anxious in this setting. And so maybe I don't like being around lots of people. But actually, that could be totally incorrect. Maybe it's because the space is overstimulated in terms of lots of bright light, lots of pattern, lots of digital screens. And actually, if they were in a room with tons of people in a um, setting with less sensory information, they might feel fine. So I think mm. it it's about tuning in to how you're feeling and just being curious about it. Yeah, totally. And um, we've gone all this way without really mentioning any of your projects that you've worked on. And g- given the fact that you are, you know, a fairly new studio in terms of, you know, two years old, you've worked on private gyms, manor houses, apartments, and even penthouses as well. What's been your approach to say, for example, what, what how's your approach differed from designing residential to something that's more hospitality focused, like the private gym? And yeah. obviously the common denominator beyond all of this is sensory design, wellness, but how has it really helped you to, to level up those spaces? So, I mean, we're also working on some big workspaces at the moment, um, which is fascinating. So I think, you know, and some big private homes um, on at the moment. I mean, there is difference with a private home or a private client. You really drop into them. um, And I work in a really co-creative way. Uh, A lot of clients say that their creativity is stimulated through the process. And, you know, it's very much around wrapping around them and their family. When you move into the public realm, you need to look at data and you need to be thinking about all sorts of people, um, you know, that have all sorts of variations around, you know, sensory preferences. So, you know, neurodiversity, autism, cognitive differences, uh, depending on the type of space, it could be things like dementia and physical differences like wheelchair accessibility, visual impairment. So as soon as you move into the public space, you need to be thinking in a much wider way. Yeah. Which Um, I just hasten to add is a large part of your research with Geberit as well. I mean, I'm reading a sentence here that says that uh, 20% of the population has a disability, whether you see that or not. Therefore, how are we not designing spaces for everyone? And I know we are, but obviously we've all gone to those hotels where the accessible 
guest room is you know facing the car park or whatever like surely we need to move beyond that now to really understand that every guest is important as each other yes definitely and and the safest way to do that I would say to any designers listening is stakeholder engagement (laughs) you know talk to people who live with you know, different, you know, variations across sensory, cognitive and physical abilities, you know, talk to people, Mm. don't assume that you are the expert because you actually aren't you, you know, as a designer, you're gathering information and then you are translating it into a design scheme, but you really need user insights. um, And that is really, really important. So that is, you know, that is the main difference when we are designing for commercial public spaces, we need to be thinking for a much larger set of people. And we usually create a bit of a strategy around that. You know, you can't necessarily design for everyone, but, you know, within this space and within this brief and this client type or customer segment, you know, what are we being really mindful of to weave in? Yeah. And that is what is a bit different than residential when you're just focusing on a particular family. Although within that space, you can also be future proofing and thinking, you know, is this the home that you would like to live in for the rest of your life? And how can we, you know, make sure that it's going to be suitable if your you know, abilities change? Yeah, absolutely. And talk to us about these uh, these workspaces, because I imagine that the brief today is going to be vastly different to what it would have been five years ago. Yeah. What's new and what's sensory design's role in these new spaces moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there needs to be real consideration that people work in different ways. Um, I love to think, you know, what does working your best look like for you? You know know what it looks like for me, Ren? I'm in my walk-in wardrobe, shut away with rubbish lighting with the best sound. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? And I think, you know, giving people the ability to adjust their setting that suits them. Because, you know, and, and in this office space that we're working on right now, it's creating introverted spaces, extroverted spaces. You know, some people do like to hide away. I love to sort of disappear. When I'm deep in research, I don't want anyone to contact me. I literally like to drop off. So I would be right in the corner of the office with loads of screens around me, you know, hiding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> and, and if companies want to get the best out of people, like if we think in a really um, capitalist way, you know, companies want to make profit. They want to capitalize on the intelligence and the productivity of their employees then you need to be creating environments that are that are going to allow that. And not everyone works the same way. You know, it's really naive to think that. It's creating uh, an office environment that allows for people with different preferences to work in those spaces. And, and the other thing that I can't stand is, you know, having offices that are purely hot desking because <laughs> that creates so much anxiety. Um, yeah, it really you know, does. so yes, a bit of hot desking is needed. Obviously, there's sort of work from home policies now, and we need sort of agile, you know, solutions and things that can be adapted and changed. But you know, some fixed desks are really important. But, you know, the workplace world uh, is very, very interesting um, to think about because it has massively changed. Yeah, I think the whole hot desking thing just makes you feel like you're replaceable or reminds you even that no one is irreplaceable in a company. You just don't have your own space. And also it's it's quite nice to go to something that's recognisable, not every day, but when when you're in the office and it's your yeah. space and it's your comfort zone. And I feel like, yeah, that that was stripped away from us a few years ago. I think it was 2012 where hot desking became like the the trend for mm-hmm. businesses to kind of, you know, strip away your identity and just kind of. It's but then so- everything is then on the cloud, isn't it? So it's less focused on what's in front of you. I guess we're designing spaces around 
our needs and and the way in which the the world is going. But I think you're right. I think there's definitely been uh, an acknowledgement of actually we need to make these spaces feel personal again and less clinical as you were talking about at the very beginning of this podcast with the hospital things things need to change they can't be just be all about profit or all about clinical and practicality it's about a feeling as well yeah I mean I am I'm doing a part-time MBA at UCL so I do a lot of research around organizational psychology and you know various things you know as you do in an MBA and you know one of my classes we were looking at a lot of research about you know what makes people feel good at work and this ability to personalize things or you could translate that into a hotel experience like you know when things are a little bit personalized to you it creates this like grounding it's almost like an anchor you know and I think especially in the workplace you know if you feel like you've got a desk you have a presence a tangible physical presence there that is a really dignified, good feeling. Or, you know, if you feel like you have the ability to put a little plant on your desk and you don't have to not bring any of you into the workplace, you know, some, some places have these policies where you can't put anything on your desk. Everything is super sterile. You know, that that's so impersonal. And I think, as you said, it almost makes you feel a bit replaceable. <laughs> and that's not good from a, you know, company perspective. If you have all these employees coming and going, a very costly exercise you know allowing people to anchor down and connect that is very important and design can encourage that yeah I, I completely agree and I think it's so interesting how we can now take what we've learned from all these different areas of the industries or different arenas if you like and then impart them into how we can develop spaces in other arenas and I, yeah. I, I love how that that kind of links together and your personal narrative it's just this constant weaving of things connecting and working out and then evolving. I kind of wonder whether you look at things as as right or wrong or just solutions to problems. And if so, are there any pitfalls that designers should really sort of avoid when injecting sensory design experiences and moments within spaces they're, they're creating? Yeah, I mean, I don't like to be too black and white about anything because I think, you know, there are certain things that can work for certain customer segments. I think sometimes we can make big assumptions that everyone's going to, you know, react to the same thing in the same way, um, or that because something worked in one space, it's going to work everywhere. So I think being very connected to who you're designing for is extremely important. Um, I'd say one trend that I'm wary of, and you know, there's some settings where it's useful, but you know, this concept of capturing data all the time. Um, and creating spaces that are reactive to that data, I have some concerns about it. So, you know, I did some consulting work in care homes where, you know, wearable sensory devices were very useful because they allowed people to feel safer, you know, individuals with dementia, or if they slipped and fell, you know, alarm could be pressed and then uh, help would come. So that's a setting where I think, you know, actually these sensors seem very useful. But in hotel experiences, when you walk into rooms and it's sort of collecting data on your heart rate and then it you know, changes the lights and the sound. And, you know, I think it, it's kind of fun, but I'm worried that we are handing over our sensory intelligence or our connection to how we feel in our body. We're sort of handing it over to AI. And the mm-hmm. risk is that actually we won't develop that own awareness on our own. And I think we know how we feel, you know, we need to learn and listen to our body. And I think there's something about this interest in, you know, smart spaces and 
responsive spaces and you know AI and bringing all of that into design that I think yes in some cases it is useful but I think we need to be very discerning about it and I think also we need to make sure that the foundation is laid first so you know you need to you can't use it as a tool uh, opposed to you know creating a space that, that naturally feels connected AI should be something that elevates what's already there not kind of takes away from the reality yeah and the other thing I would say is you know when we're working on a project with my design team everyone that is connected to that design needs to go and physically be in the space you know we need to travel to site we need to feel it in our body we need to see it in a three-dimensional way and I think this reliance of creating models and you know designing purely in the digital world designing something that will come into this world (laughs) into the physical world in the digital world (laughs) Obviously, there's uses for it. We use CAD, we use 3D visualizations, but we still need to, you know, you still need to go there and you need to feel it and you need to touch the textures. And, you know, this interest too in studios having digital sample libraries. Well, I think that's that's ridiculous. Like, Mm. you know, you still need to touch things. If you have a digital library, make sure that you're still ordering the sample and you're touching it and you're allowing your sensory body to see how it feels because we still need to you know we are creating things of this world so we need to still feel them otherwise there is this sort of weird disconnect yeah no I totally agree well I think it's really interesting because your podcast in the series sits before another podcast that we've got coming up which will explore in all its glory and in all its flaws I guess the metaverse um, and how and why and whether we should even be considering this as the future of hospitality and I think it's really important to have that conversation after this episode where we really focus on the here and now the tactile what we're feeling what we're we're experiencing as opposed to just seeing and I think that's the really interesting conversation that's going to happen in that episode yes because my concerns and I've done a bit of consulting in the metaverse you know, I'm very aware of the metaverse world. My concern is, why are we escaping reality? I can also hear it in your tone, even the way you say yeah. metaverse, you're like metaverse. I <laughs> yeah, I just, I just question it, you know, what, where are we going? Almost you know, like a swear are... word, right? <laughs> it is, yeah. You know, and there are, you know, there are some applications for it, you know, I think, especially from an accessibility perspective, if individuals can't physically get spaces, yes, there are some suitable aspects, but, you know, I think we need to be really conscientious of why are we going there? Why? Well, I think the honest answer as to why we're going there is because we live in a capitalist world and people want to make more money and brands see this as an opportunity to be able to, you know, make more money in a space that, you know, behaviorally and scientifically and neuroscientifically we really shouldn't be going into if we want to focus on here and now and I agree with you and I think the hardest part is that it's kind of those people are dictating our future whether we like it or not and actually at some point we have to not necessarily come on board but I did a panel discussion on this topic last year and it was just interesting to me that my change of mindset allowed me to unlock new possibilities in my mind around it now I obviously have my concerns like everyone else but it's just interesting to see how done consciously this could be something quite interesting but given how much well washing and greenwashing and all of that that's out there from brands really trying to make more money it's kind of scary how this is just another way of, of for that all to 
to kind of pile up like a snowball effect. Definitely. I mean, there was an opportunity for me to really get into the metaverse with Beacon. Um, and I thought, you know, people talk a lot about sensory design in the metaverse and various things. And I thought, hmm, do I want to pivot and sort of work in that space? Can I offer some beauty and light and something that does feel very capitalist, all about the money you can make? And mm. I decided actually my brand integrity was too strong for me to sort of go and pivot in that world for the sort yeah. of financial gain, you know? So I think it's not, it's not a space that I feel Beacon will go into. Um, mm. It's something I'm very aware of. Um, obviously metaverse, NFTs, crypto, very, very bad environmentally as well. You know, so the World Wildlife Fund, I think they released a series of NFTs and, you know, they were sort of really looked down upon because of the energy that it takes at that world. It's not, it's not good environmentally. So I think, you know, it's just, yeah, I think I'm sure that there are some people engaged in that world that are doing some good things. And there's some yeah. cases where it can be very useful, but it's just thinking about, if we get really honest with each other, you know, why are we doing this? And is it encouraging addictive behavior mm. and mm. the blue lights and being on screen for so oh, long? Totally. And, totally. You know, so yeah. To, just to wrap this up, because obviously we're, we are running out of time, yes. but what, what's your hope for the next five years in terms of how stimulating wellness will, will kind of be integrated into design and architecture in its in its rawest form? Yeah, I mean, my hope, I think it's just more conversations and, um, you know, being more connected to nature. And, you know, I'd love to connect more with people who do want to sort of slightly move away I guess you could say from the metaverse but you know really looking into nature and creating these beautiful tactile rich environments that are inclusive and you know really creating these conversations that you know at the start of this project how can we create something so beautiful that is so inclusive that's going to make people feel amazing and learn more about their sensory intelligence you know whether it's an installation or you know hospital or a hotel design you know that that inspires me and excites me. And I would love to see, you know, more conversations around that or more research or more mm. collaborations. And, and actually I think collaboration is really important and, you know, working in this way that is less about competing, but more about, you know, how can we work together to build a world that is really beautiful and um, sensory rich uh, and healing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I love the fact that you are the sort of person that is really championing this. And, and leading a new new era of design through everything that you've experienced and I also love how connected it is to to you personally and your your personal journey as well I really feel as if you're at the start of something amazing Ren can't mm -hmm. wait to follow your journey talk about collaboration I'm all about collaborating with you it's just an absolute pleasure um for more information about Beacon head over to the website and the other thing I just want to mention is I love that you've got a soundscape on your website like that's quite rare these days but it's just really I was listening to it this morning as I was doing my last minute research and I was just like that's just that's just cool you know like just do something differently. Thank you and that is a bit of AI you know within Beacon that I think is a really beautiful application um, yeah. you know, so uh, yeah well thank you and it's such a pleasure no worries. with you and fun yeah. and inspiring so thank that's you so much. Life should be about right thank yes. you so much friend <laughs> and we'll catch up soon. Thank you. I'm so grateful to Ren for being part of this episode. As we mentioned, it's really difficult to, to cut through the noise of this topic, but also 
to really kind of define in their rawest forms the, the terminologies such as you know just wellness and sensory design and biophilic design but I feel as if by just putting wellness and well-being and people at the core of her studio Ren is able to take design into a much more meaningful chapter and given the fact that her studio is only two years young it's really incredible to kind of understand or think where her studio is going to go from here. Thank you to Geberit for being our series sponsor. The link to the hotel guest report that we mentioned throughout the episode is in the description below. And thank you also to Mel Yates for being the master that he is and for producing this episode. Join us next time where we'll meet more inspiring individuals and capture extraordinary stories in unconventional design and architecture. Simply search Design Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And if you don't want to miss an episode, then subscribe to be notified when the next episode drops. And